0: Uh, the scripture on which the sermon will be based is from t- from Exodus 20, and then also from Deuteronomy 5. You might note that the um, text that's printed in your programs are the NIV, whereas the Pew Bible might read a little bit different. I believe it's an ESV. Uh, but listen to God's word. <clears throat> and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Deuteronomy 5. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. For the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Uh, if you were with us last week, you did get to hear my, uh, the, had the pleasure of hearing my younger brother uh, preach. So he's a Presbyterian minister, I'm a Presbyterian minister, my sister actually married a Presbyterian minister, so you can imagine what Thanksgiving's like in our home, or <laughs> or maybe you can't, and that's fine too. Uh but he is my younger brother, so it's been fun kind of being with him as well, and uh, you'll be glad to know that Mark actually saved the best Cho brother for last, so <laughs> you can thank him later for that. Uh, so in my own walk with God of late, God has been increasingly showing me the importance of ordinary spiritual practices. Now, depending on what tradition maybe you grew up in or maybe you didn't grow up in the church and you're not quite sure what we mean by that, uh, you may have Heard, it, heard of it referred to as spiritual disciplines or in the Reformed and Presbyterian uh, tradition we tend to call it means of grace. But I like this notion of spiritual practices and here's why. What do you do when you practice something? Uh, so maybe it is a piano concerto or you're preparing to perform in a ballet or you're just learning how to hit a curveball. What is it you're doing when you practice something? You're taking a complex task that otherwise would be impossible if you just tried to directly do that task. And you're breaking it down into
1: small, ordinary, daily, repeated activities. And so you practice again and again and again
0: in ordinary ways and unseen ways. And as you practice and as your body begins to remember the movements, as your fingers begin to remember the piece as you begin to internalize and you kind of develop this muscle memory, you train your instincts and reflexes, you find that a task
1: which ought to have been impossible becomes possible over time. Uh, in the Christian life, I think many Christians
0: would say that, yes, I've experienced the grace of God and know what it means to be forgiven by his grace. I've, the gospel has changed my life, and I today would love to live my life as Jesus did. I want to love my enemy. I want to be able to turn the other cheek. I want my life to be marked by self-giving love. And yet many Christians, we somehow think that we can suddenly just start loving our enemies
1: by trying harder. Uh, hitting a curve is really hard. Loving our enemies is
0: nearly impossible. And so why do Christians think that they can just suddenly start to love their enemy without some sort of practice? And so spiritual practice is, in one way, you can think of it this way, that it's a constant and a repeating of small, ordinary tasks that place us before the astounding love of God in Jesus Christ. And as we do these ordinary tasks repeatedly when no one else is looking, it develops a kind of muscle
1: memory of the soul. It kind of trains the reflexes of our heart so that we can respond in the heat of the moment in the manner that Jesus himself might do.
0: Now, there are a lot of practices <clears throat> that we see all throughout the history of the church, uh, and especially in the scriptures. We, of course, see scripture reading, uh, daily prayer, what we're doing now, worship and participation in the sacraments, these are all the kinds of practices that shape our soul and give us that muscle memory. But the practice I want to look at today in particular <clears throat> is the practice of keeping a weekly Sabbath. And the reason that I want to bring it to you this morning was because this has been particularly transformative for me. Now, a quick word before we dive into that, uh, you need to know that spiritual practices are not by any means a way that you might earn God's love or favor. Uh, what you're doing in these spiritual practices is not trying to get God to love you. In these practices, what you're doing is you're regularly and routinely placing yourself on the path of the stream of the fountain of God's love. And so you're getting wet with that love. You're swimming in it. You're splashing in that love on a regular basis. So we're not earning anything here, but we are intentionally and with a bit of effort placing ourselves before this love that has transformed so many of our lives and continues to do so uh, as well. So today I want to look at these two Sabbath commands, Exodus twenty and Deuteronomy five. And I want us to begin to see the keeping of a Sabbath as three things. So first it's practicing delight. Secondly, it's practicing resistance. And then thirdly, it's practicing trust. And we'll get each of those in turn. But first, let's look at practicing delight. And here we're looking at Exodus chapter 20. And if you look at Exodus 20, it says, God commands Israel to keep a Sabbath. And it says in 11, why? In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. But he rested... On the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Exodus 20 refers back to Genesis chapter 2, one of the first chapters in the Bible, of course. And he points out there that God, after creating all that we see, all the seen and unseen universe, after creating all of that, God rests. And we read that and we say, well, why would the God of the universe, the God who spins universes into existence by the mere breath of his mouth, why would a God like that need to rest? It certainly can't be because he's tired or fatigued. And Genesis chapter 2 portrays God as resting as a deliberate expression of his satisfaction.
1: And he takes an entire day just to delight in what he has just created. It's practicing that delight.
0: So G.K. Chesterton, who was a journalist and a philosopher, uh, he once wrote this. He said, The sun rises regularly... Maybe because it never gets tired of rising. Its routine might not be due to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. We see this in children. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not through absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. And here's where he gets to the point. But perhaps God is. Is it possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun? And every evening, do it again to the moon? It may not be automatic necessity that makes all the daisies alike. It may be that God makes, t- makes every daisy separately, but He has never gotten tired of making them. The repetition in nature may not be mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. I've never come across a passage that more beautifully captures the wonder and the delight of God in the world around us. When you think about God, is the God that you instinctively envision a God of joy and delight
1: and laughter and happiness? In Genesis chapter 2, God dedicates an entire day simply to smile upon the work that he has just made.
0: And what's astonishing then is that this invitation to keep a Sabbath is actually an invitation not just to observe some sort of a rule or command. This invitation to keep a Sabbath is actually an invitation to participate in the wonder and the delight and the joy and satisfaction of God. Did you ever notice if you think back to that Genesis one and two story when God creates all things? He creates the land and well, He creates the light in the day, and He creates the land and the sea and the moon and He creates all that He creates uh, and by the time we get to day six, God creates the pinnacle of His entire creation, the human race. And if you remember, it's a human race alone in that account where God gives that race a job. He says, Be fruitful, multiply, uh, take care, tend and protect this gardens. He gives all of this work to Adam and Eve in that garden. And then you know what happens? God creates Adam and Eve on day six. He's given all of this charge, this responsibility, the dignity of being brought into the very work of God. And he goes to
1: sleep that night ready to work as God has given him the work to do. And he wakes up the next morning and it's the Sabbath. And he can do none of what God has just asked him to do. And all he can do for that very first full day of his existence is to merely enter into the wonder and the delight and the joy and the laughter of God in the face of all that he has created. So the first thing that I want you to understand is when I talk
0: about this practicing a Sabbath, practicing Sabbath rest, the first thing
1: that I think the Bible is inviting you into is to practice this kind of delight, this sort of wonder, this joy in your life. Because
0: remember, how do practices work? We do something repeatedly that's small and ordinary, that's that's capable for us to do so that it creates the
1: muscle memory of the soul so that in the heat of a hard moment, we can respond differently. When God invites us to practice a Sabbath rest, he's saying practice delight once a week
0: so that when your life gets filled with trials and hardship and sorrow and disorientation, so that when
1: that happens, you'll have the muscle memory of the soul to, with the Apostle Paul, say, in all things I rejoice. Are you practicing this delight And if you're not, should it surprise you when you seem to lack the joy
0: and the peace and the contentment
1: when the circumstances of life begin to change? Uh, We don't have to keep a Sabbath. We get to. And we get to be invited into the delight
0: of God through that. So that's the first point. Secondly, though, Practicing a Sabbath is also practicing resistance. So let's move now to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Some of you may know this, but the Ten Commandments are found two times in the Bible. The first time, Exodus chapter 20, uh, was given to Israel immediately after they crossed the Red Sea. God has just liberated them from the bonds of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They come to Mount Sinai. And for the very first time, Moses comes down with the tablets and gives Israel the law. That was Exodus chapter 20. From there, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness uh, they've forgotten the faithfulness of God, they've complained and they've grumbled, and now they finally come to the cusp of this promised land that God was about to enter them into. Moses has grown old and he knows he's not going to enter the promised land. And so Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see the second giving of that same law, which was essentially a reminder to all these youngins who didn't see God liberate them from Egypt and say, don't forget, as you're about to enter into this land, This is the law that God has given to us. And this is Deuteronomy chapter 5. And here what you'll notice, if you compare Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the main difference that you maybe noticed as I was reading it earlier was what? The main difference here is the reason why God wants you to keep a Sabbath. The first one was in verse 11, because God himself rested on the seventh day. In Deuteronomy 5, the reason is very different. Look at verse 15. Why do we keep a Sabbath? Because you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord your God brought, uh, brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe a Sabbath. And what we're seeing here is that keeping a Sabbath is not just an act of delight. It's an act of resistance. It's a protest. He says, remember... Back when you were slaves in Egypt, when you were slaves to the Pharaoh of Egypt, you could not rest. There was no day that you could choose to take as a day of rest. You were slaves. Someone else owned your labor. But now you're free, and as an act of resistance, as an act of protest, as an act declaring and asserting your own freedom,
1: he says, don't forget, keep a Sabbath because you cannot be reduced to your production. What's fascinating to me
0: is that God tells them to keep the Sabbath, not because they're about to be enslaved again. God tells Israel to keep the Sabbath precisely when they were about to be the most free that they've ever been in their entire existence. For the first time, they're about to be their own sovereign nation. For the first time, they're about to have their own land. For the first time, they have complete and utter freedom to order their lives
1: however they would wish. And God says, precisely because of that freedom, you must remember the Sabbath. You must remember that once you were slaves, and you had no choice in the matter. Precisely because of that freedom, You must observe
0: this Sabbath. Why? Because you are just as easily enslaved by
1: your own desires as you are by the Pharaoh of Egypt. There is, as it were, a little Pharaoh in each one of our own hearts demanding that we produce a quarter of bricks to justify our existence to prove that we're worthwhile, to demonstrate to ourselves that we are, in fact, lovable. and God says that Pharaoh in your own heart is every bit as oppressive, if not more, than the Pharaoh of Egypt. In the face of that freedom, you must be able
0: to insist to yourself, my value, my worth, cannot
1: be reduced to my production. You must assert your freedom, even to yourself. But keeping a Sabbath, when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, is not just personal
0: spirituality. It might sound like that that's what we're talking about. But if you look in uh, Deuteronomy 5, verse 14, you also see it up in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 10 and following. Uh, Keeping a Sabbath was not about getting rest for oneself. Keeping a Sabbath was also about providing rest for all others. It wasn't an act of personal leisure. Keeping a Sabbath was actually an act of social justice. It was a refusal to instrumentalize the people in your life, whether your son or daughter, or male or female servant, or animals, or any foreign uh foreigner residing in your towns, that all the people around you is a refusal to reduce anyone, them or yourself. To what you produce or what you have to offer. And so it was on the Sabbath that rich and poor, adult and child, male and free, slave and, uh, male and female, slave and free, citizen, immigrant, all stood equal,
1: equal in value and dignity and worth because on the Sabbath everyone stood as sinners in need of the grace of God. And so to practice Sabbath is to practice this resistance. Is to insist upon a particular freedom from yourself and a freedom
0: for others. So, very quickly, <clears throat> I want to give you some practical tips as to how you might start doing this. <clears throat> so here are just a couple. The first thing, this has been key for me, practically, how do you start uh, observing a Sabbath? Uh, the first thing is put it in your calendar. For a pastor, Sundays oftentimes are not my Sabbaths, and so uh, I've taken Friday afternoons off as my Sabbath. But put it in your calendar. Actually have it as a calendar item. Block it off. Maybe it's just three hours or four hours to start with. Maybe uh, eventually I think we all should be working towards a 24-hour period. But put it in your calendar, and then once it's in your calendar, guard it, preserve it, protect it, hold the line, block it, everything else out. If you're like me, if it's not in your calendar or it's not in your inbox, it doesn't exist anywhere in the universe. So get it in your calendar. Secondly, uh, I've already mentioned this, be realistic. I, think, I do think our goal ought to be a 24-hour period of Sabbath. But depending on your work, that may not be possible. It may just not be realistic. And I don't know what your work situation is, or I don't know how much control you may have, may or may not have over your schedules, or what the demands of your, uh, the the nature of your work is. Uh, but my hunch is that every single one of us could take three or four hours a week where we're not available. Again, I don't know that for sure. And it's easy for you to say, don't pastors, don't you have six days of Sabbath and you only work on Sundays? Isn't that your life? Somebody once said, the thing about pastors is that they're invisible for six days and incomprehensible on the (laughs) 7th. So so it's easy for pastors to say, but I would imagine three to four hours seems like something that you can maybe get started with. But be realistic and figure out what it's going to look like in your life. A third practical tip, and I know this might cause an uprising, but I'm going to say it anyways, shut down the technology. Uh, Did you know... That airplane mode works on your phone even when you're not on an airplane. <laughs> but I think if part of the Sabbath is cultivating an attentiveness to God and cultivating this delight, cultivating this freedom, I just don't know how we're able to do that in a kind of distracted environment. Okay, so shut down the tech. <clears throat> Fourth, I just mentioned to practice delight. And what I mean by that is don't be too serious on the day of your Sabbath. Uh, if Sabbath is entering into the light of God, you need to ask yourself, where do I experience this delight in my life? A Sabbath should be a day that's not dour and strict and somber. It should be a day of laughter and rejoicing and delight. What is that for you? And then lastly, just a practical tip, make sure your Sabbath is to the Lord your God. Uh, that you could go to the gym, you could take a nap, you could go for a hike, high- you could do many number of things, but make sure that whatever it is that you're doing, that entire time is oriented to the God who delights to give you rest, who delights for you to enter into his rest as a child of God uh, forgiven in Christ. So those are just some practical tips. Uh, let's look, move on to the third and final point. <clears throat> so we've looked at practice as, uh, or Sabbath is practicing delight, Sabbath is practicing resistance. Third and finally, Sabbath is finally and ultimately about practicing trust. So let me ask you this question. If you were to stop all of your work, if you were to stop all of your anxious doings for one day, if you were to lay
1: down all of your frantic achievements, what would happen? Not much. When I first started to practice the Sabbath as a pastor, it was embarrassing to me
0: how few people even noticed. That we have this overdrawn sense of our critical importance. So the earth is not going to slip off its axis. The sky will not fall down, and the world will keep on turning. And like I said, you'll be embarrassed to discover how few people actually realize that you're unavailable. Why? Because in the end,
1: practicing Sabbath is practicing trust that there is a God, that He is always at work, and you are not Him. And in many ways,
0: practicing the Sabbath is actually just getting out of God's way, just for one day. So I've got, you know, four younger kids, a little bit older now. But the thing about having four kids that are on a Saturday, anytime you want to try to get anything done around the house, you always have four eager helpers. And usually it's great because it's Saturday and you're like, you know what, it's more about doing these things together anyways. So you, you appreciate the time to be able to work things, to work on something together, teach a kid how to do X, Y, or Z. But after a while, you get to a point where you say, you know what, you've been so helpful but you seem a little
1: tired, maybe you should go rest and Daddy will just finish the work. When you take a Sabbath, it's your Father in Heaven looking at you saying, Abe, you've been so
0: helpful. (laughs) But you seem a little bit tired. Why don't you go take a break and Daddy will finish the work. This is why I think the Ten Commandments begins with that sentence, Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of the land of slavery. I am God. I am always at
1: work, and you are not me. So go take a rest and let Daddy finish that job. But you see, our problem
0: with practicing the Sabbath is not a practical problem at the end of the day. It's actually a profoundly spiritual problem. Why is it so hard for us to rest? Why is it so hard for us to cease our productivity? Why is it so hard for us at times to be unavailable? It's because there is a deep and profound spiritual restlessness, a deep, spiritual undertow at the very bottom of our souls that won't let us rest. So here's what one <coughs> writer uh, wrote in one of his journals that got published later uh, posthumously. He says this, My craving for fame, prestige, love from the world seems uncontrolled. I could weep when I realize how much time I've wasted, how much I'm occupied day in and day out, hour by hour, by my useless, constant shadow-boxing with the imaginary
1: rejection and censure in my soul. I could weep when I realized how much time I waste by my useless, constant shadowboxing, the imaginary rejection and censure in my soul. What is that? That's the Pharaoh in our own hearts. That's a spiritual something that demands that we
0: prove that somehow we might, by the work of our own hands, be worthy of our love. That's somehow our production. Somehow
1: the works that we do, perhaps that will silence this censure. Perhaps that's how I win this constant shadow boxing. And no matter how much you try to keep a Sabbath, if you haven't addressed the shadow boxing of your soul, whatever that looks like, keeping a Sabbath will never do. You need to address that restlessness first. How? Where do we find that deep soul rest? What if you were to discover that this God, the God of Israel, in ancient days liberated his people from the Pharaoh of Egypt, what if you were to learn that this same God actually came in the flesh to liberate you from the Pharaoh and the slavery of your own heart? What if you were to learn the same God who liberated Israel so effortlessly in the crossing of the Red Sea has come in the flesh but this time actually had to plunge himself into your darkness That
0: this God actually had to come to be beaten and bruised and bloody as he battled for
1: you to take on himself all of that rejection, all of that censure, all of that profound need and insecurity to prove that somehow I could be worthy of all this. And what if you watched him offer up his own life in exchange for yours? So that by his perfect life and in the sacrificial death, you could finally be free. Free of that restlessness, free of that inner condemnation, free of that rejection and fear. What if on the cross, Jesus Christ wasn't just shadow boxing with the shadows in our souls, but what if he was actually crushing the sin, the guilt, the shame, and ultimately death itself? What if the gospel is true? What if that's what he was battling? And what if emerging out of that darkness, he comes out of that darkness, out of the grave three
0: days later, and what he brings with him is the unchanging, unchangeable
1: favor and delight and joy and wonder of God now directed towards you, not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, not because you've kept such great sabbaths, but because Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, battled your battle for you, died in your place, offers you forgiveness today so that can calm and still that inner restlessness in your heart. See, if you saw the God of the universe doing that for you, that's the kind of love that will tell your soul, you can stop striving now. That's the kind of love offered freely to you when you least deserved it. That will give you a rest that nothing could ever shake or take away. You'll be drawn to that love. You'll be drawn into a delight. You'll be drawn into a freedom. You'll be drawn into a trust. But God, who paid this price for you. So friends, let's practice Sabbath. Not because we're trying to earn a standing of rest before God, but because of all that God has done to let you know that the one place in all the universe where you can come just as you are and come in the restedness, the deepest soul restedness you could ever understand. Is before the Holy God. So let's practice that Sabbath. Let's practice that delight. Let's practice that trust. So that when a time comes when we actually have to trust God with something hard, our souls will be ready. Let's do that now. Let's pray. You're the Lord of the Sabbath. And you gave it to us as a gift. On the one hand, at the most basic level, you gave that Sabbath to us so that because that's what we need our bodies. Even more than that, you're the Lord of the Sabbath. Give us a Sabbath rest.
0: So, Lord, we pray today as we consider the Sabbath, as we approach this table, help us to know that as we delight in this family meal with the God of the universe, that here at this table is where we sit and rest and we feast with the King who laid down his life so that we might approach you freely, fully, and without
1: fear. Meet us now, we pray, around this table. We pray these things in Jesus' name.